0: All right, so let's turn our, our attention to these uh, words from Jeremiah there. Um, we're going to be speaking over the next several weeks about what it means to know God, not just a, like an intellectual knowing of God, but a real personal relationship with God, which is made possible because God has revealed himself in his word. And in revealing himself, he hasn't just told us stories about what he does and what he doesn't do. But God also, many places in Scripture, just comes out and says, This is who I am. I am this, and I am that, and I am not the other. Uh, Know me. Come and understand me. This is who I am. These are my attributes, or these are my characteristics. I I was talking to a dear friend recently who said, You know, and I agree with him, which is why I want to do this, that we don't need to just hear about ourselves when we come to church. Um, And that's important to think about yourself uh, biblically, it is important, but we also need to hear about God. I mean, I know that sounds pretty obvious, but uh, we we need to hear maybe more about God directly than we do. And so I'm going to take these Sunday evenings just to talk about the Lord and who He is and and what we can believe about Him, how we can love Him. Starting here with with, uh, Jeremiah 9, where Jeremiah simply says this, it is better to know God than to be rich or to be strong, or to be wise. Let me just let that sit for a minute. Do you believe that? It is better to know God than to be rich. Here's the test of whether you believe it. If in one hand I had hundreds of millions of dollars, and in the other hand I had knowing God, and you can take your pick, Which one would you choose tonight? Be honest with yourself. Do you believe it's better to know God than to be strong? What if I had in one hand a life of weakness where you knew God, and the other hand I had a life of power and strength and reputation where you didn't? Which one would you choose? This is a big test, right? It's better to know God than to be wise. Uh, What if I could offer you tonight the reputation of being the smartest person in town? Let's let's make it bigger, not just town, because we have a small town. (laughs) It wouldn't be that hard, right? But let's say you're the smartest person in the world, the whole world, or do you want to know God? What would you choose? I think that's very sobering to think about our answer to that. Which one would we go with? Jeremiah says there should be no question because knowing God is the very thing that we were made for, which is why he uses this boasting language. Boasting means you're taking your deepest sense of self from it. You're drawing your identity and your whole purpose and meaning in life from that thing. He says, don't draw it from being rich. Don't draw it from being strong. Don't draw it from being wise. Draw it from knowing God. Let's talk about what that means tonight. If you'll look at your bulletin, we're going to look at three things about knowing God from these two verses. First of all, what does it mean to know God? What is a true knowledge of God versus a imitation or counterfeit? Secondly, how is knowledge of God lost by us? How do we fall short of knowing God truly? And then lastly, where can we find the true knowledge of God if we've lost it? All right, so first of all, let's look at what it is. Uh, Have you ever tried to start a friendship? The answer is You should say yes, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Uh, It doesn't always go well, right? Uh, All of us have had the experience of... Starting a, trying to start one and it didn't work out. And sometimes you try to start one and it did. What are some of the things that you would consider to be important ingredients to a friendship versus just a casual acquaintance? What are some of the, the ingredients? Interest. Interest. That's good. So an actual desire to be together that, that's based on some common like or dislike. Yep. What else? Knowledge, Knowledge of each other. And how do you come by that, Jan? Yes, lots of questions. Ask questions. Spend time together. Open the mouth. Sometimes close the mouth to open the ears. Preferably a combination of both. What else? What's that? Age. Okay. So you don't want to be friends with younger people, Bob? Is that right? Is that what you're saying? I just think it's easier. Yes that's right Mm -hmm. yes exactly right a stage in life absolutely I'm just giving you a hard time it's it's so true it's so true that having a common stage in life helps what else trust Trust. big right History. history can you get to know somebody that you don't have history with sure but Part of how you get to know them is you develop history, <laughs> so you got to have history, so one way or the other. You have to like each other. Yeah, like an ease of relationship where you're, you're comfortable with each other. Um, you know, and it might you know it might not be exactly the same. In fact, sometimes being exactly the same is a is a, makes it more difficult to be good friends or good, you know intimate associates with someone because there's a clash that can happen when we're too much alike. What else? A common goal. goal. Yeah, C.S. Lewis talked about how um, friends are usually best made not face to face, but shoulder to shoulder. I thought that's a pretty good insight. Face to face is a part of it, but isn't it true that when you're shoulder to shoulder doing a common thing or, or working towards a common goal, it does help to grease the wheels, so to speak, of, of the intimate knowledge that you're, you're gaining? See, a friendship is different than an acquaintance. Why? What makes it different? You like them? You don't have to like, have to like an acquaintance. You don't. And, and actually, having acquaintances is very important. And it's important to know how to get along with people in life that you're not just sort of jiving with. and you know, That's okay. It's not necessarily sinful in that. Um, however, if, you're, if they're going to be your friend, you have to have a different level of appreciation for that person. Not just your idea of who that person is, but who they actually are. Because as you're friends with somebody, what you're discovering is who they actually are through experience and not just who you wish them to be. Have you ever had that friend or that person who wanted you to be the person they wanted you to be? Have you ever been that friend who wanted to force the people to be the way you wanted them to be? That's a relationship killer. Well, notice what um, Jeremiah says about knowing God here. He says some very important things. In fact, three things that define a true friendship with God versus just an acquaintance. And they both start with a P. Uh, First of all, it's personal. It's very personal. Look, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows the theory about who I am. Is that what it says? That he understands and knows the many millions of books that have been written about the Bible over time. Is that what he says? No, that he understands and knows what? Me. Directly me. God is, is a me. God is an I. God, God is a personal God. That you can know on a personal level as a person would know their friend. That's, that's what the Bible said about Moses, for example. That Moses knew God like a man knows his friend. What a great thing to say about someone. I, I hope that that can be said about me. I hope that that can be said about you. They know God the way someone knows a friend. And God knows them the way someone knows their friend not just a theory, not just some stories in a book that you, you know, may or may not be true, and doesn't really matter too much to you, as long as God comes in in a pinch, but a real personal knowledge where you understand him and know him. It's very different to understand and know about somebody than it is to understand and know somebody. Your acquaintances you may know a lot about. Your friends, you know them. And here God says it is boast worthy. It's worthy of drawing your basic sense of identity from this fact, that you actually know and understand God and his ways. You know him personally. You know how he acts. You know what he loves. You know what he hates. You know the characteristics that he wants to be known by. You're not trying to make him into your own image. You're willingly receiving him for who he is and giving him room in your life to be him. And you're learning how to make yourself what he wants you to be in light of who he is. That's what it means. It's personal. But notice in the second place, it's preceptive. Preceptive. Not perceptive, but preceptive. Perceptive would just mean you're looking at something, observing, and making conclusions of your own. Preceptive means you're concluding based on precepts, that is, based on things that has already been said, that have already been communicated. And so notice, may he boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that, what? I am the Lord... Who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. What does God want us to understand about himself? The things that God has personally taken the time and the pains to reveal about himself. That I'm the Lord. Uh, Notice the word Lord there is in all capital letters. Do you see that? Maybe you remember me pointing this out before. Maybe you don't. I'll point it out again. In the Old Testament, anytime you see the capital L, capital O, R, D, that is a translation of the word Yahweh. Jehovah is, what they, is the way that it used to be pronounced. Now more commonly, Yahweh. What's the significance of that name of God? Do you all remember? It's, it's the... That's right. It's the specific specific covenantal name that God picked for himself, that he he revealed about himself, it's probably a better way to say it, to Moses. It's not the name that Moses thought up. It's the name God gave to himself. Uh, In fact, in that passage about the burning bush where God gives the name, he says explicitly, people before now didn't know me by this name because I never told them. But now, Moses, I'm telling you my name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am, I am that I am, however you want to translate it, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, God wants us to know him according to what he has said about himself, how he has defined himself, which is why he goes on to say, I'm Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. This is again... How do we know God practices steadfast love? How do you know God practices righteousness and justice in the earth? Well, I'll tell you this it's not just by observing the animal kingdom or the rest of the created universe. In fact, well, what did the great poet, the American poet, say about nature? Tennyson, he said, it's red in tooth and claw. And, you know, that means it's violence. Nature's is violent. And you, you, someone was just looking at nature saying, okay, who is the God who made this? Well, if you didn't know anything about the fall or about the reason why there is all this violence, you might conclude what? This may be a terrible God who made all of this. This, this may be a God who is vengeful and has, has, loves violence. And yet Jeremiah says, boast in this, that you know, not something that you've concluded by perceiving, but by precept revealed. God says, when you look at the world and see nature red in tooth and claw, remember, I didn't make it that way in the beginning. It became that way because of your sin. I am still a God of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And I'm going to make all the things that have gone wrong right again, because that's who I am. Believe it. Believe who I am, based on my word. Preceptive, personal, lastly, it's practical. Knowing God truly is practical knowledge. What's the difference between theoretical and practical knowledge? Application. Application. So give, give me an example. What's an example of knowing something theoretically and knowing something practically? Practically. I've read about how to extract a tooth, right? And I, am, and I probably have. But what don't I have that Ed has? Experience. Experience. Now, I've, I've, I've extracted children's tooth that are already hanging very loose by a tiny. I don't count that, though, Ed. That doesn't qualify me to be a dentist. You've got practical knowledge. And I bet, maybe this is not true, but I bet after you left dentist school, There was a little bit of an adjustment period where you had to learn going from the book to the actual mouth, (laughs) right? The tooth tooth of the matter, right? What's that? That And and dental school probably happens, right? And the same thing like being a pastor, for example. You you learn about all these situations in the classroom, and then you're actually taking your internship and learning in real life what it's like. And it's in everything. Uh, This is not saying theoretical knowledge is bad. Um, You know, a dentist without theoretical knowledge, how how do you feel about that? Anybody want to sign up? I don't. Uh, However, uh, a dentist with no practice also doesn't sound very good. Well, here he says, look, to know God is to know that he's a God who practices certain things. He doesn't just say certain, certain things, he does them. In fact, he delights in them, it tells us. He delights in them, therefore he does them. He delights in steadfast love, therefore he acts graciously. He delights in justice, therefore he does justice. He delights in righteousness, therefore he judges all the earth and sets everything right. What does that mean? That means to know this God, to be friends with the God who does, must mean that I must become a person who does in light of what he does. Uh, it, It is not good to just simply want to know God here without wanting to know him in the ins and outs of your life act by actual practice which is why simply saying that you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian this is the reason why James in, cha- in James chapter 2 says faith without y'all know it works is dead he's not saying That to be saved, you have to have a little bit of your faith plus a little bit of your works and you earn your salvation by the combination of the two things. He's not saying that. He's saying faith, which is what saves you because of Christ, is only real faith if it's accompanied by actions. Your life ought to be different when you know God. Uh, The same thing is true, by the way, when you don't know God, it will also show up in your life. It'll show up in your actions. Um, Jesus made it very clear when he said, you will know a tree by its fruits. What it does reveals who it is. And we could say, you know, in the context of this lesson, what it does reveals who it knows versus who it does not know. True knowledge of God is personal, preceptive, and practical. It's not just intellectual, knowing about God. And it's not just ritual going about God, going about the motions. It is actually a combination of all of it because it's a real friendship. It's a real covenant relationship with a real personal God where we're called to walk with him, to walk and live before his face, knowing that he sees us, and to glorify and enjoy him each day forever and ever. Real, pulsating, life-giving relationship. Changing our lives. Making us different because we know the God who has revealed himself to be a doer. Now think about this. I want to read a quote from Jonathan Edwards. It's always fun to read Jonathan Edwards. He wrote in the 1700s, mid-1700s, so sometimes, you know, it's different. But this one I think is pretty, pretty clear. Let me read it and you can judge. He says, A true knowledge of God and divine things is a practical knowledge. "...as to a speculative knowledge of the things of religion, there are some wicked men who have obtained great measures of it. Men may be of vast learning, and their learning may consist very much in their knowledge in divinity or theology, their knowledge of the scripture even, and other things appertaining to religion. And they may be able to reason very strongly about the attributes and works of God and the doctrines of Christianity." But herein, their knowledge fails of being a saving knowledge. This is where it fails. That it is only a speculative and not a practical knowledge. He who has a right and saving acquaintance with divine things sees the excellency of holiness. And of all the ways of holiness. For he sees the beauty and excellency of God which consists in holiness. Does that make sense to y'all? 1700s. I can give you a brief paraphrase. The person who really knows God is someone who delights in what he knows. In a more lucid moment, Jonathan Edwards said it this way. There's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that honey is sweet. Right? And when it comes, I mean, maybe there's somebody in the world that's never tasted honey. I don't know. Does that person exist? Maybe. You could imagine that person would be able to say, honey is sweet, because they've learned it. They've watched Winnie the Pooh. And so they know it. Honey is sweet, right? It's good. But they don't know it like I know it. And like you know it, we know it because we've tasted it. Even more so with God. There are many people that can say all kinds of things about God. And some of them are even true. In fact, the Bible says Satan knows a lot about God. But he doesn't like it. It's a speculative knowledge. Uh, You think you can out quote scripture to Satan? I don't think so. And yet he doesn't like near a bit of it. And that means he does not know God. This is not a speech against knowing Scripture. Please don't take me that way. You gotta know Scripture to know God, but you got a taste of the God that you read of. That yeah, makes sense. All right, that's the first thing. What it really means to know God. Now let's look secondly at how we lose the knowledge of God, and, and this passage also teaches us that. Look at verse twenty-three. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. How does a person not know God? How does a person fail to know God? It's because that person is living a life boasting in other things besides God. That's how you lose it. Uh, this is why I'm glad that we read the question in the catechism tonight about the covenant. Because it's a perfect word to describe human relationship with the Lord. It's like a marriage. What causes marriages to break down, to break apart, eventually to dissolve, besides death? Usually it has something to do with a lack of trust. Trust has been breached. Um, there has been, a, there's been an affair. There has been... Unfaithfulness, things like that, usually are the things that cause it. Not always, but usually. Well, the, well, Scripture tells us when we boast in created things rather than boasting in God, when we get our essential definition of who we are and who we're going to be and what we're going to do from anything besides God, we have committed spiritual adultery and our daily living in spiritual adultery against God. And God takes offense at it. Just like you would take offense if your spouse treated you that way. God talks that way. In fact, in in Jeremiah 2, just a few chapters before this, he says that very direct thing. He says, look, I'm about to give you, Israel, a certificate of divorce. Why, God? Why are you going to divorce us? Here's why. Why? Because you've turned away from the fountain of living waters and have hewed out cisterns for yourself, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You try to replace me with things, stuff, maybe even yourself. You boast in those things. That's idolatry. You base your knowledge on me on things besides my word. You, you, you move from a preceptive view of God to a perceptive where you're trying to perceive it by your own wisdom, uh, that is always going to lead to a breach in the relationship and a lack of genuine knowledge of God. Idolatry is the root of all sins, really. It separates us from true knowledge of God. It hardens the heart, the Bible says, against God, and it darkens the mind to where you can't even understand the things that God has freely given to you. It's a big deal. Uh, Terry Johnson, in his recent book, or sort of recent book, about the attributes of God, says there are actually four different barriers to knowing God. And I think they're all four connected to this idolatry. And I'll, I'll list them for you, and it may pique your interest to go and check out his book. Uh, he says the first one is presumption uh, it's, a, it's a barrier to knowing God to presume you already know Him. <laughs> That's one of the worst things you can do. Uh, God is like me, only bigger. That whole mentality of, I know God, of course I know God. I don't need the Bible, I don't need the church, I don't need all this help from people. I know God. He's like me, but bigger. He's like Santa Claus. I got it. Presumption. Secondly, he says, anti-intellectualism is a barrier to knowing God. This is the attitude that says, I don't need to think deeply. It's a waste of time. I'm a doer, not a thinker. And I just want everybody to think about this more carefully. (laughs) Um, God gave you a book. Guess what that means? He wants you to be a thinker. He wants you to be a reader. He wants you to be a processor, right? I get it. Some people are more inclined to it than others. And you being not as inclined to it doesn't make you a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. But you still got to do it. You still got to read. You still got to process. You still got to think. Um, God wants you to think deeply. In fact, He tells you to love Him, love Him with all of your mind, all of it. That's like a high calling that none of us live up to. Third, He says uh, a barrier is super spirituality. You know, this whole idea that I don't need any help. Because God is just going to give me sort of this direct, touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy connection to him without any kind of interference from a book or from people or from history or church. or Nobody has ever... I mean, for that to be true, you literally have to like be an alien from outer space. And you're not. You're a person who lives in this world like everybody else. You put your pants on one leg at a time... Yes, you need other people. Yes, you need the book. Yes, you need the church. You're not too big for what God says you need. Lastly, pragmatism. This is from Terry Johnson. Presumption, anti-intellectualism, super spirituality, and pragmatism. Now, I just said knowing God is practical, but this is the mistake of saying it can be practical without first being doctrinal uh deeds not creeds that whole idea of just tell me what to do and i'll do it and i don't need all that you know in, you know intricate stuff about the trinity and about the atonement of jesus and the, the bible being inerrant and inspired why do i need to know all that just tell me what to do and scripture says you can't do that without being set free in your heart by the good news that is conveyed in the doctrines of the bible These are all barriers, and all of these barriers come from a heart that basically says, I want to boast in something, God, besides knowing you on your terms. I want to boast in some other thing. I want to boast in myself. I want to boast in my own experiences. I don't want to boast in you. It's important for us always, and this is something I think about myself all the time, because I believe it's true of me, too. What right now is blocking me from knowing God more deeply, more truly, more fully? I'm always asking that. And I'm always coming up with new answers, new blocks, new things I need to ask Him to clear away, new new bad attitudes, new bad ideas that need to be rooted out, new bad habits that need to be replaced with good ones. Uh, We need to always be thinking about that. All right, that's what it means to lose knowledge of God. It's to essentially ignore him and to try to replace him with other things. Now, lastly, where can true knowledge of God be found? And this is beautiful, but we're going to look again at this verse where it says, Let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. What does that imply? All right, let's break it down. Are there wise people in this world who boast in their wisdom? Yes or no? Have you known any of them? Are there mighty men and women who boast in their might in this world? Oh, boy, yes. Are there any rich people that boast in their riches? I'm not sure about that one. Now, yes, of course. Now, if... If, there, if it's true that there are those three people, this verse is also saying there are those who boast that they know God, and they actually do. Right? Just as surely as there are wise men who boast falsely in their wisdom, and just as surely as there are strong people who boast in their mind, rich people who boast in their riches, there are those in this world, and there always have been, Because God has made sure, we just talked about this in our last series, God makes sure of this by his eternal plan that there will be a people who know him truly and boast only in that. And I find that to be very encouraging because when I hear that I think there's hope for me. There's hope for me that I could actually know God truly, that God might actually provide. We already said he provides the knowledge because it's got to be preceptive. It's got to come from him first. He provides that. Well, this is saying also God is the one who provides the heart in me that is ready to receive the knowledge that he gives. And ready to receive it eagerly and personally. And then readies my heart to be able to boast in this friendship that I've been given by grace to have with God it's God who's doing it Uh, Jesus tells a story in in uh, all the gospels I think it's well it's in all of them except John where a sower went out to sow the seed remember that one he's scattering the seed everywhere it's falling on all different types of ground falls on rocky falls on the path falls on the thorny falls on the good Do you remember what Jesus said the seed stands for? (laughs) The word of God. So, okay, the seed is provided by God in the story. Now, do you remember the part of the story where Jesus says, Hey, y'all. Hey, soil. Make yourself good soil. You remember that part of the story? Because it's not in there. In fact, have you ever known any soil to make itself good soil? I mean, I know they have miracle grow and all that stuff, but somebody else made it that way. What, that's, what that story is trying to show you is God is so gracious. God not only gives the seed, gives the knowledge by which we can know Him, writing it in His Word, but He gives the heart to the humble. He gives the heart to the believing. He gives the heart to his people to be ready to receive it and to bear the fruit of it in their lives. That's why at any given time in history, at all times in history, sometimes they've been a tiny number, but there's always been a people who knew the Lord truly and were friends with God and boasted in him. At, at one point, it may have been just a few. We read it some dark days in the book of Genesis where literally it was just Noah I mean, it kind of came down to one man who knew God. There was Enoch, right? Remember what it says about Enoch? He walked with God. What a compliment. He walked with God. Man, don't you want that on your tombstone? She walked with God. Don't you want that to be more than just an empty boast? I do. And the Bible says that for that to happen, God gives the seed and sows it and God provides the soil. And here we are, a believing people, born of grace, ready to know him the way Moses and the way Abraham and the way Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul, and Peter, the way they knew God, we can know God through His Word, by His Spirit. If you have your Bible in front of you, you might want to keep your finger in, in Jeremiah 9 and go to 1 Corinthians 1, and you'll see kind of a well, He actually quotes Jeremiah 9, but He gives, He quotes our passage that we're studying tonight, but He gives a little commentary on it. Which, here, here's a tip for Bible study. Anytime you can find the Bible quoting and commenting on itself, pay attention. Because it's giving you clues as to how to interpret the Bible. It's showing you how to interpret it. And you can not only learn from their interpretation, but you can also learn how to yourself interpret it according to the same rules they're using. Very important. You should always pay attention to it. Here's an example. Starting in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing... In the wisdom of God, the world would not get to know him through human wisdom. It's not possible. You cannot get to know God on your own. God has made sure that it's so in his own wisdom. Why? So that through the folly of preaching, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For here you have Jews demanding signs and then you have Greeks seeking after wisdom, but we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews who don't believe, and a folly to Gentiles who don't believe. But to those who are called, oh, those who are called, those whose hearts have been made ready by grace, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, if you could say such a thing, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, if you can say such a thing, is stronger than men. For consider our calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written in the passage we've been studying tonight, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There is a way to know God. Not just in the thoughts, not just in the ritual, but to know him really. How is it? Christ? Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the word of God made flesh so that we could behold God's glory. When you look at Christ, you know who God is and who God always has been and who he always will be. If you're reading the Bible, which is the only way to get information about God, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible tells a story from beginning to end, And every part of the story is about him. Jesus is the one who will crush the serpent's head, the seed of the woman who would be raised up to crush Satan forever. Jesus is the ark that saved Noah and his family. Jesus is the ram that was caught in a thicket so that Isaac could go free. Jesus is the lamb that was slain and the blood was covering the doorpost. Jesus is the one who split the sea so that the Israelites could go through. Jesus is the manna. Jesus is the rock that gushed out water. I could go on. Jesus is the tabernacle, both in the holy of holies and the mercy seat and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, saying the final word from God. Jesus is the ultimate priest, giving the final sacrifice that has to be offered. He's the king because he is the king of all kings, the prince of rulers and kings on earth. And Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world so that he could baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know God. He calls you friend. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He calls you bride. Let that sink in. And I wonder if you can relate as you let that sink in. Can you relate to these words? Which appear in the hymn that we're about to sing in closing. Listen to these words. Can you relate? Jesus, the very thought of Thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far Thy face to see, and in Thy presence rests. Can you relate? Jesus, the very thought of Thee fills my breast with sweetness, but sweeter far Thy face to see, and in Thy presence rests. In other words, Jesus, I boast no more in myself, I boast in you. Let me see you, let me know you, both now and forever.